Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. We hope you enjoy this message by our guest speaker. Hey, happy Thanksgiving weekend, or Thanksgiving. I did it again. Happy St. Patrick's Day weekend. Man. It's like you tell yourself, don't say that because you did that last time, and you still do it. I see a couple people wearing green. Thank you. Uh, I realized last night I don't even own anything green, so I'm up here not wearing green. But uh, I pastored in Boston for a number of years, and this is my first St. Patrick's Day here on the West Coast, and it's a little different. Uh, In Boston, we kind of celebrate it all year long. And uh, it's just a little different. The Irish culture has an incredible thing. But I hope you've been celebrating this weekend. St. Patrick was a pretty unbelievable person. A lot of people don't know the full story of St. Patrick. But he grew up in a pretty well-to-do family and was actually captured and put into slavery in the pagan island of Ireland. I mean, he's got a crazy story. He's 16, gets captured, sold into slavery. So all of a sudden, he finds himself working for this chieftain who was actually leader of this pagan religion, this Druidism, and he's, he's like serving in this guy's household. His faith, which had been nominal up to that time, even though his grandfather was a minister of the gospel, begins to come and become real to him while he's enslaved He starts getting dreams from God. And one of those dreams, he sees the people of Ireland, and and especially the children, they have their hands open. And God says, someday you will be bringing the gospel of truth to these people. And he's like, yeah, well, that's nice, but I'm enslaved. When he's 22, after six years of slavery, he has another dream. And God says, hey, go to the coast, find a ship. I'm freeing you. And so he does it, and he goes to the coast, finds a ship, convinces them to let him on. He goes, he ends up in France, somehow is able to reunite with his family, but that burden he has to bring the truth to the, to the island nation, the pagan islands, considered the ends of the earth, Ireland had not left him. So what does he do? He finds Reach Training Institute there in France, and he says, I gotta get prepared, field ready, debt free. He finds it, and he gets prepared. And he spends a couple of years in education, and the passion to go does not leave him. And he leaves right away, and he goes back to the place where he only knew as an enslaved person. And he brings the gospel. And we know the story. The the island was transformed because of his obedience. He brings the simple message of the gospel, and he allows it to interact with the pagan culture there, and it transforms it. It transforms it, and it starts a revolution. And we're in the middle of a series called Revolution, and today we're looking at another social revolutionary figure. We're looking again at Paul who three to 400 years earlier than when St. Patrick was doing this was doing similar type things in spreading the gospel through the nations. Today we're looking at this third journey that he goes on and yet again we see that the gospel is bringing people together and it's bringing people together that oftentimes we wouldn't imagine being put together in community. And it's that unity, it's the unity of these diverse communities that Paul puts together that we're discussing today. We're looking today at the church of Ephesus, the church of Ephesus, and the beauty that happened as they came together and how that reflects God's image to this prosperous and strategic city. You see, Ephesus was one of the largest cities in Asia. It was the capital city of Asia under the Roman Empire, and it was the richest and most influential city. It was a port city. It was an educated city. They had the largest library in the world at the time. It was a city that was far beyond its years. It was also an incredibly spiritual city. 
They had an incredibly large temple. The amphitheater sat 25,000 people. In the middle of the temple sat a statue that was carved out of a meteorite that had fallen to earth that depicted their goddess of the city, Artemis, also known as Diana. She was the one that protected them, that provided the prosperity for the people there. We also know that, that the city of Ephesus grew, and it grew really quickly. Actually, it doubled in size between 50 and 150 CE. And we know that that population growth was only because of immigration. The infant mortality rate was incredibly high. And so immigration happened and people came because there was work, because there was education, because there was health, and people fled to this strategic city. I've had the, the fortunate opportunity of actually visiting the ruin of Ephesus. And I was able to go there with my wife, Jess, a couple years ago. And here's some of the pictures there. The library still stands. It's incredible. And here's a more up-close picture of the library. It had many manuscripts. And, and the city was magnificent even in that day. And even walking around today, you can see the impact that the church, that the gospel had on the city. You see pictures like this of crosses all over the place. But the people of Ephesus knew how to do community. They did community really, really well. And this is, this is seen in this picture right here. See, this is, uh, they had communal toilets, right? And if you can, like, do that together... You've, you've got strong community. And I don't know, I don't know how, like, what are the cultural norms? Like, if you go in, do you sit next to someone? Do you always leave one, like, open? Do you talk to each other? I don't know how it works. But obviously, they knew how to do community really well. And then for my own enjoyment, their danger signs there were the coolest things on earth. I, I find them amusing. I don't know if others do. But really, it's like, keep out or else. I, I don't know. But... What I want us to see from this city is it was a strategic city. Here's a map of Paul's third journey, and we see he starts in Antioch, he ends in Jerusalem. This is a five-year journey. And he goes and he strengthens many of these churches that he's already been at. He's writing letters to other cities, and it's a strategic time. This is kind of the, his big trip. But the interesting is, Three of the five years he spends in Ephesus. He spends it in Ephesus because Ephesus is a strategic city. It's a capital city, just like Salem. It has influence on the other cities around it. And what happens in Ephesus, it's a pretty cool story. And I want to go there today. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts 19. Acts 19, if you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 924. If you're using your smartphone... Just scroll down until you find Acts. You'll see it there. I'm going to start in verse 8, but I just want to let you know the first couple, of uh, first couple of verses of chapter 19 are incredible verses. They talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and we're not going to talk through that today, but I encourage you to read those. But after this series, we're going to have a three-week series on the Holy Spirit, and we'll be touching on that type of thing, and I hope you're excited about that. I'm excited about that series. But today we're going to start in verse so Acts 19, verse 8. Then Paul went to the synagogue and preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some became stubborn, rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way. So Paul left the synagogue and took the believers with him. Then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannius. This went on for the next two years so that the people throughout the province of Asia both Jews and Greeks heard the word of the Lord. God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles. When the handkerchiefs or aprons 
that had merely touched his skin were placed on sick people. They were healed of their diseases and evil spirits were expelled. It gets weirder. Verse 13, a group of Jews were traveling from town to town, casting out evil spirits. They tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantation, saying, I command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, who was a leading priest, were doing this. But one time when they tried it, the evil spirit replied, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? The man with the evil spirit leaped on them, overpowered them, and attacked them with such violence that they fled from the house naked and battered. Let me just pause here. It's definitely one of the top ten strangest paragraphs in all of Scripture, okay? What is going on here does have importance. It's a fascinating thing. I'm not going to take time to explain it all to you today, but I just want you to know one wiser than me. Her name is Jennifer Roth. You just email her, and she will explain this passage to you. She's got it covered. She'll take care of it for you. All right? So Jay Roth at SamAlliance.org. In all seriousness, and in the sermon notes that will be online, I've written some commentary on that section because I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, and you can see that there. But the simple explanation, in my opinion, of what happens here is that we have a God that pursues we have a God that pursues, and he's entering, and his kingdom is going forth in a city that is fascinated, even obsessed with spiritual powers. They're obsessed with it. And what happens? God graces them and says, I am the all-powerful one. And he graces them with unusual things that show his power because of his grace, and that draws people into his kingdom. I believe it's a picture of his grace and how he pursues us where we are. But what happened in that house shook the entire city. And we see that as we continue on in verse 17. The story of what happened spread quickly all through Ephesus to the Jews and Greeks alike. A solemn fear descended on the city and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. The value of the books was several million dollars. So the message about the Lord spread widely and it had a powerful impact. This is the word of the Lord. As we've looked at these different journeys that Paul goes on, I hope you've noticed that there is a pattern that's happening. When Paul enters a new city, he first goes to the synagogue and he ministers to those who are like him. He ministers to his Jewish brothers and sisters and he proclaims the message of the risen king, the Messiah to them. And many turn and follow him. But after sometimes it becomes uncomfortable and he's kicked out of the synagogue and he ends up going to the secular places of the cities. He goes to the marketplaces. He goes to the educational institutes. In this case, he goes to the philosopher's hall, to the hall of Tyrannius, and he preaches the gospel there. And there he spreads his net wider and he preaches the gospel to the Greeks. He preaches the gospel to the Gentiles. And it's amazing what is happening here. Because what Paul does is he takes the road less traveled. What I would have expected Paul to do would be, hey, I've been here for a while. I've got this church of these messianic followers of Christ from the synagogue. They're following Christ. They don't want me in there anymore. Great, I got a church. Here's a messianic congregation. 
And then I come over here, and now I plant another church among the Gentile believers. And I have another church, and now I've planted two churches, and that's incredible. But that's not what Paul does. What Paul does is he breaks out of the monocultural thinking, the separatist mindset. Even in the synagogue in Ephesus, there would have been a wall that divided the Jews who were in from the God-fearing Gentiles. He tears that down. He tears it down, and he creates one New Testament church. And that's because the gospel brings people together. The gospel brings people together. It brings people together who might not normally be brought together in community because of the reconciling work of Christ. He is the unifying factor. Here in the city of Ephesus, the disruption of norms continues. Paul is a social revolutionary figure. He comes in and he's proclaiming who Christ is. And it is it is just doesn't sit well with the culture. It's quite fascinating to me because I imagine the Roman leaders of the day, they see this split happening in the Jewish quarter. They see this split happening and their minds are saying, this is great. It's gonna be even easier to control these people and keep them from rising up. This is wonderful, but that's not what happens. It's not what happens because the gospel brings people together. It creates this multi-ethnic movement where men and women and Jew, Gentile, rich and poor, slave and free are all equals. And it creates this unity. And that unity scares people. That unity is what brings the shouts of disruption. See, it started a movement. And that movement was all about community, community that was visibly good and kind and attractive yet disruptive because their allegiance was to King Jesus in a government, in a city, under occupation where allegiance was important. Yet was it a revolution? Because these were people of peace. So revolution wasn't going to happen in a way that other communities that were growing in size and power would happen. This group accumulated no weapons. Yet the threat was there and the threat was real and the revolution was starting because it brought economic change. It brought equality. People coming together under the banner of Christ, reconciled to him. People that usually didn't associate together, united. And it was the unity of the people that was the threat. Paul went after all classes of people. Brian showed us that last week as the gospel entered Lydia's household. And Lydia, just a reminder, was a very wealthy and powerful businesswoman. And we saw the gospel come into her house and transform the household. We know that the gospel went after those who were in power and the wealthy. Here in Ephesus, we see Paul preaching to the working class. He's preaching in the heat of the day. The only time he could probably get that philosopher's hall was when the sun was beating down on Ephesus in southern Turkey, when most people were taking their siestas. But these working class people getting off their jobs came to hear him speak because he had the words of life. And we know they were working class people because they took off their aprons. They took off their sweatbands. They took their handkerchiefs. And in those were power. He was preaching to all people, and he was uniting them together. Like in the other cities, he built the church regardless of economic status, ethnicity, or age because of the reconciling work of Christ. They were one in Christ so that the world would know and love and believe God. We see this in John 17. John 17 says, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me 
and that you love them as much as you love me. The gospel still carries the power to unite. My time in the Middle East, it was amazing to hear stories coming out of Israel, to hear stories coming out of Palestine about the unity in places where you wouldn't expect to see unity. And just this past week, I emailed a friend of mine who's a leader in the church in Jerusalem, and I said, hey, tell me some ways that you're seeing this recently in the church there in Israel and in Palestine. And he sent me back this email. He said, Rob, we have one local Palestinian congregation. It's Palestinian-led, but we have Arab Christian background believers. We have Arab Muslims who have found Christ and are following after him, meeting with Jewish Messianic families that are worshiping Christ together in one body. They meet in the Thompson Chapel, a place where our early history records Jews and Arabs knelt side by side and prayed in their own languages. The years of war and conflict meant that from 1948 until 2016, no Arab Alliance congregation met there. But today, God is bringing things full circle and Arabs of Christian and Muslim background are worshiping there together with Messianic families and they're joining with them together under Christ. And you can clap. Another powerful picture is the annual Holy Saturday celebration at the Garden Tomb. This was sponsored by our local Arab evangelical churches for almost 15 years now. They've been inviting the Messianic congregations to join them. So Christian background, Muslim background, Jewish background, followers of Christ are all gathering together in the heart of this divided city of Jerusalem, worshiping together in front of an empty tomb because they have been reconciled to God and to one another. Amen. Church, our alliance movement was born out of this. You see, our founder, A.B. Simpson, was pastoring a prestigious and wealthy church in the middle of Manhattan. This church was wealthy. But the immigrants started coming to New York at that time. And A.B. Simpson would go down. He would go down and he would start to invite the immigrants. He would invite the, the Italian and the Irish. And he would share Christ with them. And they were coming to faith. They were experiencing the love of Christ and seeing the power happen there. But when he tried to bring them into his prestigious church, his elders shut the doors and said, no way. No way. They are of a different class. They are the working class. And he said, you know what? I resign. He resigned, he left the prestige, he left the money, and he started a movement among them. That movement is the foundation of our denomination, the Christian and Missionary Alliance, which has spread all over the world. In fact, seven-eighths of the people worshiping in alliance circles this morning are worshiping not in the U.S. Our movement is founded on this. One Magotle, who's a pastor in South America, says this, South Africa, sorry, says this. As the bride of Christ, we have the greatest news to have hit the face of the earth, and this news must bring people together, all people, regardless of ethnicity, culture, age, or socioeconomic background. This is what Paul demonstrated in Ephesus. He writes the letter, the, the, the book of Ephesians, he writes that letter to the church in Ephesus. And he tells them, he made peace between Jews and Gentiles. God made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility towards each other was put to death. The author Grant Osborne summarizes that verse this way. By being killed, Christ killed the differences between us. By being killed, Christ killed the differences between us. Us. 
Church, the gospel gathers. It's the glue. It brings diverse community together. And when that community gathers together, the blessings are immense. I want to explain to you just a little bit about what this could look like. And you know in Scripture that we, the church, collectively, we are often referred to as the bride of Christ. It is an analogy that we see used in Scripture. And so for just a minute, would you do this with me? Picture in your mind what a bride looks like, all right? Get a mental image of a bride. Do you have a mental image of a bride? All right. How many of you picture something like this? How many of you picture a woman in a white dress? Most of you, I imagine, picture something like this. If, if you're not picturing that, this analogy is not going to work really well. So please, <laughs> pretend that you be right? But, but my question for us is, is, that's our view of it. That's our view of it. But now let me quickly paint a picture of how Christians in other cultures, other nations, other tribes might imagine the church, the bride of Christ, because we know that one day, according to Revelation, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will gather around the throne and worship. So how might our Nigerian brothers and sisters view the bride of Christ? Different than us. The bride wearing a caftan and matching headdress. What about our brothers and sisters in Mongolia? The bride wearing a deal. Bright colors. Vibrant our Kazakh brothers and sisters. The headdress is the centerpiece, different than we might imagine. What about our brothers and sisters in North India? Vibrant pink and red colors, often ornate. Our brothers and sisters in Ghana. Families there have their own cloth patterns, generally vibrant in colors. What I'm trying to show us here is that our focus at times can be limited, even narrow. And therefore, our image of God might also be. But we are just part of the fabric that makes up the kingdom of God. We are part of it. Church, the fabric is diverse. It is beautiful. It is vibrant. And we're just one piece of it. I believe the church in Ephesus understood this because of the diversity they had. They had a large picture of God and how his kingdom operated. And that leads to our second point. This beauty of people coming together gives us a more complete picture of who God is. We're richer for it. When we see the richness and the beauty of other people different than us and other cultures that are not like ours, if we take a posture of being able to receive from them, it will open up new, deep understandings of who God is, how his kingdom operates, and how grand it is. Yet even being around diversity is not enough. And when I speak of diversity, I'm speaking of age diversity, ethnic diversity, and economic diversity. It's not enough unless we engage with it, unless we embrace it. But that's difficult to do. That's difficult to do because we often want to slip into what is like us, what we know. That is what is comfortable, and that's where we often end up. As many of you know, my family lived and worked in the Middle East for 12 years. And in my time in the Middle East opened my mindset, the constructs I have in my mind, it, to so many things. But it was a process. When I arrived in the Middle East and I began to minister among certain communities and, and, and bless them, I landed with a degree in humanitarian development. I, I landed having a knowledge of the power of the gospel for transformation. I, I had these things. And I landed and I said, I'm here. You're lucky. I'm ready to bless and fix you. Right? And that is the arrogant posture that I entered into communities in that first or second year. 
It was, and I had to repent of that. I had to realize that just because it's different doesn't mean it's not as good. And over time, after 12 years there, when I left, I began to just grieve. But I also began to be thankful for what I experienced. Because I learned as much from my Arab brothers and sisters in Christ as I had from anywhere else. They made the gospel come alive in ways that my seminary professors never could. I learned more about listening and contentment and hospitality from my neighbors than I have time to explain here. What I realized is that everyone brings a level of richness and wealth to the table. And if we have a posture that allows us to receive, we will be blessed. Understand that I'm still trying to figure out how to do this. I'm getting better at it as I mature and as I've seen the value of seeing wealth and richness in all people. But to do this, I had to come to an honest place with myself and realize that I have these constructs in my mind. I have this ladder, and up here are the people that I am able to receive from, and down here are the people I don't receive from. They're the people I give to. And I had this ladder. I had these prejudices. I still have some of them. Some of them I'm aware of. Some of them I'm not. And Steve talked about this a couple weeks ago. But I had to deconstruct that ladder. And the new image that the Lord gave me is it's a table. And we all sit at the table. We all sit at the table equal able to receive from one another. It doesn't matter where we are in our journeys. It doesn't matter how much money we make or how down and out we are. It does not matter. We are all equals before God. I'm blessed. I am blessed to have lived in varying cultures that have opened my mind to these things. Even my time in Boston taught me so much playing in a fast-pitch softball league with about 160 people. 158 of them were either Cuban or Dominican. Uh, Two of us weren't. Getting to be with those people, getting to be with my brothers from those backgrounds taught me so much about family, commitment to family and community and working hard and being together and finding joy. Ministering alongside the, the Black Ministerial Alliance in Boston taught me much. It taught me about the power of the African-American church and the way they're able to partner with the city to break social injustices. They introduced me to gospel music, which allowed me to break through in new levels of worship I didn't know existed. And still today, when I have trouble breaking through with my worship songs that I'm used to singing, I just put on my headphones and I turn up and I go for a run and I listen to my Fred Hammond and I listen to my Hezekiah Walker and the Lord meets me in powerful ways. And those of you that have volunteered with Salem, of Salem for Refugees, thank you for volunteering. And many of you probably went in thinking you're just going to go to serve. And you've left realizing you've been blessed by it. You've been blessed by it because as you've interacted with our new neighbors, you realize how they just paint a great picture of who God is and how his kingdom works. See, the church in Ephesus was a win because Paul took the road less traveled. And he planted one multi-ethnic, multi-class, multi-generational church rather than two churches. The church, this bride, these people of God experience the full picture of God in his image. And additionally, their ability to receive all types of people into their setting was attractive to their city and it helped set them on mission. 
Speaking about the church in Ephesus, the author Mark Demias writes this. In those diverse faith communities, believing Jews and Gentiles gathered as one to tangibly express the peace, hope, and love of Christ before a lost and dying world. In doing so, men and women of varying backgrounds came together to obey the great commandment, declare a great compassion, and fulfill the great commission. Their unity of mind, heart, and purpose resulted in a great expansion of the gospel into accomplishing his will on earth as it is in heaven. What we see in Ephesus is still the reality of the Jesus movement today. And this morning, understand, I am not here to challenge us collectively to create a new vision statement, a new mission statement, to become some incredible, multicultural, socioeconomically diverse church. That is not our goal. Our goal is to still just make disciples and see Salem become a city at peace with God. But what I am saying is that I believe we as a church are becoming more and more like the church in Ephesus. We're changing, and that brings me joy, and it brings me great glimpses of what heaven will be like, and I'm calling us to appreciate what we have, to embrace it, to engage with it, to see the value that we have in generational diversity here at Sam Lyons Church, to appreciate the economic and the ethnic diversity that we are growing in here as a church. Pastor Tim Keller writes this. He says, our character is mainly shaped primarily by our social community, the people who we eat with, play with, converse with, and study with. I would add worship with. And I would also add that our view of the image of God is also expanded because of the social community we surround ourselves with. Diverse community allows us to more fully see who God is. So church, how can we apply this to our lives in the coming weeks? Let me give you three simple ways and encourage you to engage in this and experience God in even fuller ways than you have been. The first thing I encourage you to do is this. Seek out someone who runs in a different circle. Seek out someone who runs in a different circle than you. When you find yourself sliding into just comfortability and being with people that are very much like you, can I encourage you to break out of it? College students, grab somebody much older than you. Those of you who are in your 70s and 80s, grab some college students. Have coffee. Talk about what life was like. Talk about how you experienced God. Talk about what it's like to be in this culture, in your stage of life. Ask what moves that person to worship. Maybe you live on a street where some of your new neighbors have just made the United States their home. Have them over for a meal. Ask them to bring a dish from their homeland. Ask them about what the transition's been like. Ask them what the church was like in their homeland. Was there even a church? Share with them our culture here, but learn about theirs. And can I encourage you to have dinner or coffee in the next couple of weeks with someone that's in a different economic sphere than you are? Generally, if I'm hearing that challenge, I'm right away thinking to someone that is in a lower economic sphere than me because that's more comfortable than approaching someone that makes a whole lot more money than I do. But can I encourage you to even talk to those who make way more than you do? Take them out to a meal. Pay for it. 
Ask them how their relationship with Christ is. Ask them how they see theology relating to their wealth. And ask them how they worship and what their struggles are and and what their life is like for them. I believe as we seek out people who run in different circles, our view will be expanded. Second, receive from someone you usually might not receive from. This one is hard to control. And this one is on here because I'm bad at it. This one is on here because I'm a person that has trouble receiving at times. I want to grab the check. But you know what? Because of that, I'm a robber of joy. I rob people of joy who want to bless me because I don't want to receive from them. Church, I need to repent of that. I continually repent of that. I continue to deconstruct the ladder and live more of a life that we're all at a table. And I encourage you, if you have those prejudices, to repent of those, to deconstruct your ladder. But don't stop there. You need to take action. You need to interact with people that are different than you as a sign that you're moving in that direction. Many of you in this church serve others. How are the people you're serving blessing you? Do you have a posture that is able to receive from them? What have you learned recently from those you're serving? From the young. Receive from people different than you. And finally, last thing, take in worship and theology from another culture. Take in worship and theology from another culture. See, the gospel is going all throughout the earth. And it's engaging with all different types of cultures. And when it does, what it produces, the writings it produces look very different than the writings that are produced here. It's amazing some of the writings and articles and theology that's coming out of Singapore and India. Many of these people are writing in English to help us have a better understanding of how the gospel has affected their cultures. Read what's happening there. Read about how the the church in the Middle East is handling persecution and how the gospel speaks to that. It'll surprise you. Read about how the impoverished are handling their situations with joy because of the gospel in South America. And can I just encourage you to to change up your worship playlist a little bit on your phone, right? Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music. Those of you that are older, your tapes. Just order some cassettes or CDs or eight tracks or whatever it is you do. You You can order those online as well as there's still some brick and mortar stores. Maybe you can find it there. I don't know. But just figure out how to do it. But add some flavor to your worship and see how God will meet you through how these other cultures are expressing worship to God. God relates to people and cultures differently, and we can learn from that. Listen and experience. Church, let's pray. Jesus, we worship you today as a creative God. You are the creative God who made all these different cultures, which are all made in your image And we just ask you that you will continue to reveal more and more about how grand your kingdom is and how grand your image is to us. Would you give us the courage to engage with people here in our city of Salem that are different than us? And would we experience blessing and be a blessing as we walk in that? In Jesus' name, amen. Salem Alliance Church is a community of Jesus followers located in downtown Salem, Oregon. And we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, 
please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. You can view today's entire service online at livestream.com backslash Salem Alliance.